Listening to The Holistic Voice with your hosts, Austin Vitaliano and Jordan Reynolds. Welcome to The Holistic Voice. Jordan, what have you been up to recently? So, recently, um, I was able to perform in a lot of different choirs. So, I've been doing a lot of church gigs. There was a Mass in Clifton I did that was a filmed version of a Mass. That was a lot of fun. And I've just been singing at churches like Trinity Church here in Boston as well as the Cathedral of the Holy Cross, where I sing every Sunday. And that, that's been great. That's wonderful. And then I saw a video that you shared on the Holistic Voice podcast Instagram page uh, for the Living Room Concert Series. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, that was fun. They reached out to me over Facebook, I think, and was just asking if I had anything they'd want me that I would want to post. Um, they're just trying to feature different artists like globally, and make it kind of a YouTube, and they call it the the living room concert series, right? So it's really low pressure, just an artist in their like living space, a recording, and then just sharing it to the World Wide Web. It was really fun. It was it was a good challenge to put together, and it was fun to share it on the the Holistic Voice page too. Uh, we're doing some really cool things with the the social media of the Holistic Voice, so be looking for that, especially on Instagram. We're posting every week, choosing a topic, one of the five topics we, we talk about normally on this show. Those topics including vocal health, vocal technique, artistic development, business skills, and vocal career opportunities. And this week was vocal career opportunities, so we got to see Jordan's video there. We had a midweek post about making sure that you're visible for everyone in the industry, and I will be posting a video a little bit later this week as well before we rotate to our next theme. So next week is Nat's auditions for me. So I've been prepping uh, quite a few pieces and we're going to be doing local auditions, then hopefully going to the regionals and then the nationals will be, I believe, in Washington state. So keep out for an update for that um, on my end. And speaking of churches, I just finished, there was a DC chapter, uh, Dorothy Smith vocal competition that we'll be hearing shortly about those auditions there. So you and I are very busy, busy, but we don't want to take up too much more time. What is the topic and special guest interview that we have for this week, Jordan? So this week's episode is pretty different from what we've been doing in the past. I'm really excited about it. We had Rebecca Kleinberger on the show, and she is a PhD candidate at MIT studying the voice full time really diving into the science aspect of it, coming from someone who like doesn't claim to be a singer, was really fascinating to just look at it from a different angle. So this interview does get pretty heavy at times, so we're going we're to we're gonna interject every once in a while. Make sure we're all on the same page for a second. It's really fun, and I think you'll, you'll get a lot out of the episode. So I am with Rebecca Kleinberger. Very excited to be here with you. Rebecca is an MIT PhD candidate studying in opera of the future. So what is it that got you interested in voice? Well, I realized that there are so many different research fields that study the voice, from biology to medicine to professional vocalist, but also psychology and physiology. But those fields don't talk to each other, or not, not enough. And when I started studying the voice, I was just picking 
some discoveries here and there around the voice and just transforming them into experiences. Because what is the voice, right? All of those fields are going to have different definitions. Is that the sound that come out of your mouth? Is that the sound, how other people hear it? Is this the mechanism? Uh, is it the neurological processes that brings to this sound? And I like to think about the voice as an experience. We're always experiencing our voice, the voices of others, in, in a way that's totally holistic. So Thanks for the plug. That's great. <laughs> Anytime. And I think that there was really something missing in academia in the way of looking at the voice. So that's, that's a little contribution that I try to bring, is taking things here and there and creating really very much applied system and hardware and software and wearables and experiences around the voice. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your background? So before coming to the lab, I studied in France, got the equivalent of, um, the French system is a bit weird, so I got the equivalent of a math and physics bachelor. Then I went on to study mechanical engineering. And then I, I after my first master in France, I went to the UK where I studied in UCL. It was a computer graphics program. And after that, I came to the Media Lab seven years ago to study in the Opera of the Future group. It's, the group is directed by Todd McOver, and it has um, six, seven grad students. And so since I arrived in the group, I've been studying the human voice. I was mainly trying to figure out how I could use all of my background directed around music. And then I realized that the voice is a great object of study because you can see it from so many different points of view, right? So one of my first projects around the voice I built a physical model of how the voice works. So basically modeling the voice in terms of mass and springs to produce a sound from a computer. Okay. Um, that was a very fun project. And that forced me to think about the exact functioning of the voice box, or at least how we understand it today. We understand the voice as a source filter model, meaning that there is the vibration of the vocal fold, and then there is the shape of the voice box. And if you decouple those, you can consider the vibration of the voice box as a mass moving very fast, right? And you can model that uh, mathematically. And then you can also model um, physically with either finite element or other ways the shape of the voice box. That basically made me realize that before that, I had no idea how the voice worked. And it's such a common thing to talk, to use our voices, but so many people have no idea how that works. And it's very, very complex. So yeah, basically what this project made me realize is that I had no idea how the voice worked. So this forced me to dig into the current knowledge on the mechanics of the voice box and also realize that it's relatively recent that we have such a good understanding. And it's even, and it's already, it's, it's even not perfect as of today. Like every week there are better models that are created. Why? Because contrary to a lot of other muscles or the way maybe our eyes work, it's completely hidden from sight. You, you have no intuitive sense of how things work. And you can also not study it on animals because their voice box are so different. And you can also not study it on corpse. So contrary to a lot of knowledge in medicine that, was, um, that has evolved since uh, the ancient Greek and in other cultures too, the voice box was not that much studied at the time. And it's, I, I would say in the last hundred years that we started to really understand what, what's going on there. One little element that I 
that I like to talk about in this direction is we don't know our own voices and that can often lead to people not liking their voice or not appreciating to the full extent. The very direct example is so many people don't like the sound of their voice on a recording machine. The fact that we hear our voice differently from uh, how other people hear it. And a lot of people are familiar with the, the, the concept of bone conduction. The fact that um, I hear my voice conducted um, not only through the ear but also through the bones uh, which conduct the low frequencies more. So it creates a filter and I hear my voice generally more directed toward low end than high end. And what's funny with that is that when you look at the, the spectrum of uh, the voice, it's composed of formants, so different peaks. So we're going to take a moment and pause and talk about a few of these concepts Rebecca has just mentioned. One of them is source filter model. The other is uh, formants and bone conduction. So starting with source filter model, the source is the vibration of the vocal folds themselves. So this kind of sound that you would get if you took away everything around it. And the vocal tract itself is the filter. And so the vocal tract, when you do this sound from the vocal folds, it gives that space and shape. And that's why we can hear our voices as we do now, instead of just kind of this faint buzz. And the way I like to think about this is to think about a megaphone. Um, when you put the megaphone up to your mouth and you speak into it, you know, it gets louder, obviously. And the megaphone itself, in this case, would be the filter, filtering the source of your voice. So this is just going back another layer, thinking of the vocal folds themselves as the source of the sound, that vibration, and the space of the vocal tract being the filter. Perfect. The second thing that she mentioned was bone conduction. The question that I always hear is, why does your voice sound different on a recording than it does when you are speaking? And I like to answer that. It's because when you're speaking, you hear yourself in two different ways. And it really relates to what Rebecca was speaking about. The first way is through vibrating sound waves hitting your eardrum or hitting someone else's eardrum when you're speaking. That's the way that people hear your voice. The second way is through vibrations inside your skull set off by your vocal cords. Those vibrations in the second way travel up your bony skull and then set the eardrum vibrating. It's that traveling through the bone that spreads out and then lowers the pitch because it slows down that frequency. That gives you a false sense of bass. You get this robustness that you feel when you're speaking. Then, when you hear a recording of your own voice, it sounds distinctly higher. And sometimes you're Austin, and your voice just sounds bassy and boomy anyway. But, you know, for the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's, I think it's, it's the same for everyone. If I hear myself on the, on the telephone, I don't, you, you, you get what I'm talking about, right? Oh, on a, on sure. a voice recording or something, you hear yourself and you're like, ugh, it sounds horrible. Oh, yeah. So... In the next voicemail that you give to someone, don't beat yourself up so much when you listen back to it. <laughs> You're yeah. hearing different things. Informants. This is such a big topic that we could go into a, many different episodes speaking about. But as a baseline for formants specifically, she talked about peaks and formants. Let's just take the basic building blocks and put a glass bottle in front of you. We'll fill it with water, and if you blew across the top of this bottle, you would hear a pitch. Why? 
inside the air of the bottle, it would vibrate and create a sound wave. That air inside that Coke bottle wants to vibrate when you blow across the bottle because and it's, it's based on the shape, the size, and the density of that glass. So say you changed the water level in there and it would create a different pitch. That pitch that we're talking about is a formant in the most basic sense of the word. That is the basic concept of what a formant is. Now, just to be clear, and Jordan, correct me if I'm wrong, resonators are containers of air, but they do not start the sound. So that the air in between, in that Coke bottle, that, that cannot initiate the vibration, right? Exactly right. Yeah, the formant is not the, the pitch you're hearing or the sound itself. It's the potential for that sound to be amplified. So that you have that space, you know, if you drink a little bit of the Coke and the, the pitch goes lower and lower, it's you actually blowing into the bottle that's exciting that air and creating that source. But the filter, like I was talking about before, is that space that's left in it. And the way that that space is shaped happens to create energy at that pitch level. And that, that potential for energy is the formant. Bringing us full circle back into the source filter model. So uh, that's a great little wrap up that we have there. Do you want to jump back into the interview? That sounds great. Another project I worked on uh, early on was a vocal vibration project. Uh, it was part of my master's thesis, and it was an installation designed and, and thought of by Todd McOver, who, who designed two compositions to go with this uh, with space. Uh, one was a 10-channel composition, only composed of voice recording from a lot of different traditions, and another space as a more intimate one-person experience where people had to vocalize along while holding a little a ceramic object, and their voice was transformed in real time in vibration that they could feel with their fingertip. And, and designing this uh, interactive object was a very interesting challenge because basically those vibrations are already present in your body when you make sound. So that was a really fun way to also see other, other parts of the voice that are not just the sound it makes, but how it's felt tactilely in our body. So, you know, when you put a finger or two on your throat while you talk or while you sing, you can feel those vibrations. And becoming aware of those vibrations can have a lot of potential applications. Tenors uh, have a particular advantage because when they sing, the frequencies of their voice uh, match pretty well with the sensitivity of their skin and the level of their torso. So tenors can learn to become aware of that physical aspect of their voice. And in the 50s, there are techniques that were developed to help tenor use that to better their singing voice and mainly to become uh, independent of acoustics of room. Because when you hear yourself through the feedback, it's not only your voice, but it's also how your voice reflects with your environment. Well, if you think about the voice as a more internal process, it can become... Uh, it's a different relationship that you develop with your voice. What we realized early on was that generally men really like playing with it, but women didn't get what was going on. And then I realized that, be that you can also understand this phenomenon by touching in your throat and singing a high note. If you sing a very high note, you're actually not going to feel anything with your fingers because uh, it's, it's, it's too high for your skin to feel them. So uh, we had to do some pitch shifting and, and, and do a whole type of, um, of filtering in the object so that anyone could uh, get the experience. 
What do you think were the results of that experiment? The work was based on a lot of previous knowledge on vibration and biology and medicine. So, for example, there are a lot of therapies based on vibrations. So vibration therapies are, are used for different health problems. Some of them are for chronic pain. Chronic pain is generally treated with vibration therapy. Uh, people who have... Um, Older people who have arthritis, arthritis is also uh, sometimes treated with vibration therapy, um, but also more and more um, people working in, in cell structure and biology are also using vibration therapy in order to affect um, division of cells. So Rebecca was speaking specifically about vibration therapy, and this was a topic that wasn't very familiar to me. So I did a little bit of side research before the episode and found a great article by Stephanie Rosenblum, who wrote an article titled, What's the Buzz? Sound Therapy on the New York Times. And this is a very specific type of medicine therapy. It's called sound healing which is also known as vibrational medicine. And this is the practice that employs the vibrations of the human voice, as well as objects that resonate. So tuning forks and gongs, Tibetan singing bowls, to go beyond relaxation and to actually stimulate the healing process. Now, I want to give a little bit of a, a side note that there aren't clinical trials that have been done to show that sound healing is medically effective or healing works. However, when Rebecca was speaking about the subjects holding an object and becoming extremely calm, Stephanie Rosenblum, when she was writing, speaking about, she spoke about when the heart rate is relatively steady and the breathing is deep and slow, stress hormones decrease. When you're calm, this healing power of sound is significant because stress can depress every aspect of the immune system. And Jordan, you, you and I know that when stress gets to you, that can uh, wreck our immune system, get the flu going, get the cold going, and then we're going to be wrecked for a performance or something like that. So that's what I've researched. Great. I think it's interesting to note that these vibrational therapies that Rebecca is going to be talking about, she mentions, are often in the same frequency range of the human voice. So there's something about those vibrations from the human voice that is therapeutic. And we talk about choral singing a little later in the episode. I would love to examine that a bit further, if anything about the vibrations around us as we're singing in a choir is therapeutic, and that's part of that experience. Because, you know, there's a lot of science behind the choral singing being really good for your health, but I would love to know specifically if that is related. Right. And if anybody has any other research or findings that they would like to share with us. I was extremely curious going down this rabbit hole of uh, sound vibration therapy. So please uh, share on our page or any of our social media platforms. So now we'll get back to the episode where Rebecca talks about a specific use of this vibration therapy. So apparently those have potential for a lot of different health conditions, you know. Not going to cure everything, but in terms of reducing symptoms and increasing uh, and decreasing pain, it's something that has been used for a while. And when looking into this, we realize that the frequencies and the amplitude used in those vibration therapies are sometimes in the same range than the human voice. So we thought, could could the human voice be used? Could we create new practices around the voice? that also targets the same type of things. Can we, instead of needing a device to do vibration therapy, 
could we just make people sing in a certain way? So that was part of the what what led us to the project. And then there was also a lot of thoughts around older traditions of mantra and chanting that are also very much based on the vibrations of the voice. So what we created is um, is a very open-ended experience where people would hold a device and basically sing whatever they want, being guided by the music composed by Todd. And we got really interesting results, both in terms of people getting in really, really relaxed states. So we measured that with their heart rate and their breathing rate and their um, uh, electrodermal activity. So people were either very much able to relax or other people went way more into um, very engaged mode where they would say they would produce sound that they didn't know their voice could produce. And that was a pretty interesting result for us because we have no idea of the potential of our voices. We use it in a very socially accepted way. We speak, we produce the right sound, we don't speak too loud, we don't make weird sounds all the time. But that, I think, is an, also an interesting practice. Experiment more. There are so many rules in classical music, in other musical traditions, in the way we talk, we're allowed to talk or not. There are too many rules. Let's break them. Of course, don't hurt your voice, but it's by experimenting and, and breaking rules that we'll understand where the potential lies. Because there's a lot of unexplored potential in most of our vocal traditions and even in our way to talk. Also, become familiar with your vocal posture. The fact that when you sing or when you speak, you're not just trying to imitate or to reach the right sound, but it's always going to be a mix between who you are and what that ideal sound is like. So this embodiment is always going to be a way to express yourself. Another fun fact, um, the word persona come from, at, in, in ancient Greece, it meant the mask that actors are wearing when they play drama. And those masks had two roles. One was to um, to present the character. So, um, for example, women were not allowed to play uh, in, in theater. So when a, a man was playing a woman role, they were, they were wearing a woman mask. Um, but the second role of the mask was to carry the voice. It was an acoustic tool to carry the voice in the atrium. So somehow this whole notion of mask and voice and who you are are kind of really intertwined. Somehow the society rules how we use our voice and that, that's also how we are in society, right? We, in how we behave with others, how we're allowed to behave by ourselves. In the TED Talk, I mentioned this very strange link between our inner voice and our outer voice. The fact that um, somehow all the sound that we produce the signal in our brain that generates those sounds is not one signal but two signals. We have one signal that really tell our brain to activate the muscles and we have another signal that stays within the brain to inform the rest of the brain that there are going to be motion, that there are going to be sound. And we, we now think that this second signal, this internal signal, um, is very linked with the experience of the inner voice. So when you have an experience of the inner voice, when you rehearse a talk in your head, when you have a song stuck in your head, it's actually your brain saying, oh, this is how I would produce a sound if I were to produce a sound. This is pretty interesting because the inner voice nowadays is only studied in terms of uh, auditory hallucination. But most of us 
have sometimes experiences of the inner voice. One very niche area where uh, we are now studying that is in the domain of stuttering. So with my friend and colleague, um, Mike Erkinen, we are um, doing a project to try to see how we can increase fluency for people who stutter. 1% of the adult population worldwide stutter. It exists in every culture and in every language. And it's a very mysterious condition. It's mixed between some genetic aspects, some environmental aspects, um, some neurological aspects. Um, according to the DIVA model, um, designed a few years ago by Frank Gunter, we think that the reason why people stutter is because this feed-forward signal, the inner voice, and the feedback signal, meaning what you actually hear as a feedback when you speak, when they are compared in a part of the brain called the basal ganglia, instead of accepting that they are similar enough, the brain blocks and says, wow, it's too different from what I'm expecting, so I'm just going to just shut down for a while. And that's what we think causes what we call stuttering-like disfluencies. So blockages or re -re -re repetitions um, or a continuation of sounds. So those are the three stuttering-like disfluencies. And so we, we, in our project, we're using this knowledge to create different type of feedback based on music that people are going to hear in real time when they speak that are going to reshape the pathways in their brain to make them more fluent. So it's a, it's a pretty interesting project um, that uses all of those ideas around inner voice for very... Uh, specific application. But this application also allows us to understand the voice better for everyone. If our listeners wanted to come see your research, uh, where could they go? RebeccaKleinberger.com. Uh, you can see some of my previous projects uh, and you also can contact me there with questions or if you want to participate in the research. Wonderful. And you talked about your research as far as working with people that have a stutter. Are there any other projects you're working on that you'd like to, to let our audience know about? We are working on a lot of different interventions right now, the San Diego Zoo, uh, but also on, on other animals more locally. We're thinking about ways to help bird embryo communicate with their parents before hatching. So birds uh, start hearing about halfway through incubation when they are still in the egg, well, depending on the species, but at least for precocious species like chickens and ducks. But in a lot of cases, eggs are removed from the parents as soon as they are late. So this vocal communication is broken. And even if we bring the, the chick back after hatching, there has been a moment of interaction that not happened. So we're thinking about ways to recreate this, this vocal and audio connection between parent and chick. Um, so we're creating some kind of Skype from within the egg, baby monitor for eggs. <laughs> so you had mentioned vibrations um, as being a therapy of sorts, and this sounds like it's kind of in line with that when you're speaking and you hear that voice and those vibrations for the child. It's important for that that relationship. Um, I was wondering, there's you know a lot of articles I've seen about the benefits of choral singing. I was wondering if you'd looked into that at all, just like with why choral singing seems to be such a, a good thing for mental health. There is this great paper that I'm going to send you because I just forgot the title that that talks about this and that explain how choral singing and we're not really sure how much of that comes from the real vocal shared experience or 
if it's mainly based on the breathing, shared experience, the synchronized breathing. But synchronized breathing is associated with a lot of um, neurological processes that um, make us act socially, make us um, uh, behave for the common good of the group rather than as an individual in the group. Um, so that's just one example. There might be a lot of other reasons uh, that, that choir singing is is just very great. Um, but the specific research that happened about eight years ago, I think, um, goes in details in that and was one of the first papers that I read and was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. I would love that. And we'll, if it's available online, we'll link it in the episode notes and everything. Great. Thank you so much for being on the show today. It was fantastic talking to you. Yay, thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks. Bye-bye. I think what Rebecca said towards the end of this episode is something that shouldn't be brushed over for our audience members. There are so many rules that we abide by in society and music, for that matter. And that also includes the way that we speak. We're limited in our range because it's not polite to yell. Uh, we whisper in libraries, etc. But it's by experimenting with our voice that we explore the full potential of it. So I'm just going to really champion Rebecca and say let's investigate and continue to explain uh, all the potential that our voice has. Yeah, definitely was one of the highlights of the interview for me as well. Also recommend checking out her TED Talk, Why You Don't Like the Sound of Your Own Voice. She dives into that concept. And I just think that idea is so important to realize that, you know, you need to experiment. It's so important as a vocalist to, to be able to use your whole instrument. And if you aren't comfortable for societal reasons and things like that to express yourself fully, it's going to be hard to develop a career. A fun example of that quickly, Renee Fleming came and visited my school at Brigham Young University. And one of the things she said there was she used to practice and her husband would come in and be like, you know, no one would know you were a singer if they came in and heard you practicing. Ooh. Because, um, and like, that sounds kind of like shade, but what he meant by that was like, you know, she's making all these weird sounds like, whoa, and like, you know, sounds that you would not make in normal conversation. And you can hear my baby go ahead and making sounds like that too. You know, like <laughs> there's no inhibition. She's just doing it. Yeah, But uh, Renee Fleming making all these different weird sounds during her vocal practice and it's allowing her this huge instrument and this um, incredible palette of colors that she's able to paint with her voice. Yeah, that's great. Well, Jordan, I'm so glad that you brought Rebecca in for this interview and uh, I hope that we can continue in, in any of the projects that she does in the future to bring her in for subsequent episodes. And if anybody on our listenership has any questions for Rebecca uh, or that Jordan and I can answer about the topics that were discussed today, please reach out theholisticvoice.net or other social media platforms. Right, Jordan? That's right. Thanks so much. Also, I'd like to mention that our Patreon page is up. So if you enjoy the show, please consider going there and supporting. We also have really cool rewards there. Like we're going to be doing extra episodes for people that are donating and live Q&A sessions, things like that. Lots of really cool things. So go check it out at our Patreon page. It's The Holistic Voice, uh, patreon.com slash The Holistic Voice. And that's a wrap, folks. See you next time.